Bibles, please open them to Ruth chapter 1. We'll continue on in our new series, looking through this book together. We will be looking at verses 6 through 22 of Ruth chapter 1. It can be found in the Pew Bible as well as in pages 5 and 6 of the bulletin. Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Then she, that is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set, set out from the place where she was with her daughter, two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to, with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitter, very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth no Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. You may be seated. And as we do, let us together go to the Lord and ask his help as we come to his word. Father God, we ask that you would, indeed by your spirit, give us wisdom, give us insight into your word. Be with the words of me, this preacher, weak and simple as I, though they may be. I pray that my words would be faithful and true by your spirit. May your words be heard by your people, by your spirit. To the glory of your name and to the building of your church, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Near the end of the book, The Fellowship of the Ring... As the fellowship begins to break, a scene plays out between Frodo the ring bearer and Samwise his gardener that very closely parallels our text this morning. For those of you rolling your eyes that Derek is doing another Lord of the Rings analogy, I apologize, but I've looked, it's been almost a year, so you're welcome. I'm giving you what you're all pining for. But in that scene, if you've read the books or seen the movie, you're familiar with it, Frodo is determined to journey to Mordor on his own to fulfill the quest that he's been given to destroy the one ring, the ring of power. And Samwise knows this, but he refuses to let Frodo do it alone. Sam says in a quote in the book, All alone and without me to help you? I couldn't have borne it. It had been the death of me. 
It would be the death of you to come with me, Sam, said Frodo. And I could not have borne that. Not as certain as being left behind, said Sam. But I am going to Mordor. I know that well enough, Mr. Frodo. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. But I must go at once. It's the only way. Of course it is, answered Sam. But not alone. I'm coming too, or neither of us is going. Out of his love for his master and his friend, Samwise is ready to go where Frodo goes. To risk what Frodo risks. Even to die should Frodo die. He chooses, even as he looks ahead, the dark and empty road with Frodo to Mordor. As much as I love Samwise, and I do, I think he's one of the greatest fictional characters in all of literature, Ruth is his match. In her commitment here to Naomi, Ruth is forsaking all that she knows, all that she holds dear. She is choosing to walk by faith the dark road with Naomi back to Bethlehem. She is willing to even embrace the emptiness that is staring at her in the face, as well as in the face of Naomi. And by doing so, by embracing the emptiness, by walking by faith, this glorious story of God's redemptive grace in this family marches on. And by doing so, all the people of God are given a means by which we can examine our own trust in our sovereign and gracious God. You and I are called to live by faith, even when faith must embrace emptiness. You and I are called to live by faith, even when faith must embrace emptiness. This entire section of Ruth, chapter 1, really shows us what it means to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to walk by faith and not by sight. We see that Naomi and Orpah choose to walk by sight. Naomi alone chooses faith, and ultimately she chooses the way of the gospel. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Three points for us to cover this text this morning. We'll look first at walking by sight, then clinging by faith, and finally blinded by bitterness. And walking by sight is where we and Naomi begin. As all three women look ahead at the road back to Bethlehem, Naomi and Orpah, all they can see is hopeless emptiness. Naomi may be returning home, as we heard last week, hearing the good news that God had returned and visited his people. But as we very quickly see in this text, she doesn't go with joy and with hope. As one commentator writes, her body may be going back home, but her spirit is far from being restored. She's going simply because she's got nowhere left to go. Her future may be a shade brighter in Bethlehem, but it is still a dark future. We see Naomi's very bleak perspective in the speeches that she gives to her daughters, pleading with them to turn back. And I don't want to dismiss these words as being harsh or cruel. They really are motivated by Naomi's love for her daughters-in-law. Without a doubt, she wants what's best for them, or at least what she thinks is best for them. She says these words thinking and convinced in her mind, her mind consumed with sight, that this is where they'll find a hopeful future. And we see her love in her prayerful speech, as I call it, in verses 8 through 9. 
where at some point in the journey, they stop and she turns to her daughters and says, go home. But she says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Out of love for her daughters, Naomi graciously lifts this, this invisible burden that may be on Orpah and Ruth to stay with her and encouraging them that they can go home, find husbands. She even surprisingly says, go to your mother's house instead of what we would traditionally expect her to say, go to your father's house. The father's house would emphasize security and, and, and rest. The mother's house would actually encourage more of, of love and marriage. She's saying, go back home and find happiness, find delight, find joy with new husbands, new families, and maybe even new children that you never experienced when you were with my family. And it also should be noted that in this, this prayerful speech, Naomi is, is using very covenantal language. She invokes the name of Yahweh, the covenant God, the covenant name he gave his people. She prays for his hesed, his covenant faithfulness to go with them, just as they have shown it to Naomi and to her family. Then she even pronounces the blessing of his rest over them. And so we may read this prayer and be, and be tempted to think that Naomi has, has finally come around. She's turned full 180, not only physically, but spiritually. Her heart appears now softened enough to ask that the Lord would bless his da her daughters-in-law. But the truth is, even as we hear her utter these prayers, we, we know the condition of her heart. We see it in verse 13 and later on in verses 20 and 21. And sometimes it's the condition of our own hearts, even as we lift up very covenantally faithful prayers. She's bitter. She may know that God is able to do these things that she's praying he will do. But she's not overly convinced that he's willing. Because he hasn't been so willing with her, at least by her understanding. So why would he be so willing with them? But even without these words revealing to us the condition of Naomi's heart, it is interesting, at least I find it interesting, that Naomi prays for Ruth and Orpah to experience the covenantal blessings of Yahweh where they should not expect to experience them, outside of the covenant community, in Moab. We see that even in this prayer, Naomi is still living by sight. She still is looking at Moab and saying the grass is greener. She's still looking and seeing that land as the land of promise, at least for Ruth and Orpah. She thinks Moab has blessings better than the blessings of Yahweh and Israel. Maybe not so for her, but certainly for her daughters. And such is all that Naomi can see. Her prayer may sound like faith, but it's still operating very much by sight. And in case we're not convinced, her second speech really dials into what Naomi sees is hopelessness. It's all she can see. Two more times after offering this prayer, she pleads with her daughters, turn back, return, go home, 
go home. And humanly speaking, she makes an extremely compelling argument. The picture is not pretty in verses 11 through 13. Let me summarize it. She says, my womb, and actually the word she uses is my intestines, which gives you a picture of what she considers of her womb. It's useless and empty. There's no children in here. There's not going to be any children in here. She says, I have zero husband prospects. No husband, no children. Then she says, even if by some miracle I, I should get a husband tonight and conceive, and maybe it's even twins, twin boys, are you going to wait 16 years minimum for them to be of age to be your husbands? Will you even be in childbirth years in 16 years? And then lastly, she just flat out says, and I'm bitter. Staying with me will make you bitter. Staying with me will mean you will experience only bitterness. We see in, in Naomi walking by sight, she's like Frodo. All she can see is the darkness of Mordor. The bitterness, the pain, the hopelessness. And it's an extremely, again, convincing case that she makes. She says, if you come with me, you're going to be embracing an empty life. If you go back home, you at least have the chance of a full one. But it's also a, a proposal void of faith. Because when we read between the lines, what she's really saying is, I, Israel, and Yahweh can offer you no hope. Your family... Moab and your gods possibly can. And we see Orpah believes her. She stares into this hopeless void that, that Naomi has paints for her, and she makes the reasonable and rational choice to walk by sight. It says that Orpah kissed her mother in law, and then the assumption is, and she left. And maybe in the short term, this decision proved out to be wonderful for Orpah. Maybe she went to Moab and found a husband. Maybe she even had not just a couple, but a whole house full of children. Maybe she even saw generations after her and closed her eyes in relative peace. But what did she miss? What did she lose out on by choosing to walk by, faith, by sight instead of walking by faith? She lost what Ruth would gain, inclusion into the people of God, the covenant community where Yahweh's blessings flow. Seeing only death, we, she would miss out on life. Seeking only a temporary future, she would miss out on a much more glorious and a eternal one. Orpah's decision, she thought she was turning from the emptiness when she was actually turning to it and away from the blessing of Yahweh. And before we come down really hard on Naomi and Orpah, we, ought to, we have to be honest and confess that we too so often walk by sight. As we walk this pilgrim's life, we tend to only see the darkness and the gloom and not God's promises 
or his, abil- his ability to work through, to redeem, and to restore the darkness and the gloom. Or we see the fullness that this world has to offer and we're convinced that this time we won't be left empty. We won't be left looking to fools. Or sometimes we even, like Naomi, utter prayers of faith, but our hearts are swirling with unbelief, with doubt. We doubt God's promise to forgive and to heal our sin. We doubt his willingness and his ability to save the most lost of our friends, our family members, or anyone else for that matter. We doubt there's joy and delight found in the places where his word has told us there's joy and there's delight because we don't find it immediately or we don't find it in the ways we think we should. Walking by sight is a daily battle for us. May we not be like Naomi and Orpah and give in to the temptation, but may we daily confess when we walk by sight. And may we not walk by sight, even when that sight promises hope and joy and comfort and ease of this world. Instead, let us be like Ruth and choose clinging by faith, which brings us into our second point. As Ruth looked at the road ahead, she doesn't get fooled by anything. She sees the emptiness, but she embraces it in faith. Ruth is Samwise. Samwise knew what going to Mordor meant. It would be dangerous. It would be dark. It would be filled with despair. And as he would say, there'd be no guarantee of a trip back to the Shire. He embraced all of that when he said twice, I'm coming to. And Ruth gives her I'm coming to speech in verses 15 through 17. And this speech is, is one of the noblest and most impressive speeches maybe in all of scripture, with each line intensifying the one that comes before it. Words are not accidentally put together, they're not meant, they're pointed, they're intentional. And even in the Hebrew, there's, there's a poetic rhythm and a symmetry that I would butcher if I tried to pronounce it to you or walk you through it. I'll just leave you to trust me on that one. She makes this covenant vow and even ends it with what we would refer to as a self-imprecatory oath where she invites the curses of the covenant on her if she should fail to do what she's promised. Such an oath would draw Naomi's mind and draws our minds back to Genesis 15 when the Lord took a similar oath with Abraham. And saying, I'll bear the curses if I don't follow through on the promise I've made. To make you a people. To bless you. But the ending of the oath is really not the emphatic point. It might be the one that made Ruth pause or makes us swallow the hardest. But it's really these words that she she pours out of, of showing her clinging by faith that shine forth. And first we see that Ruth aligns herself with Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Ruth is with Naomi to the end. She is going to cling. And that word is the same word we find in Genesis 2. 
She's going to cling to Naomi like a husband is called to cling to his wife. She's going to walk this dark road with her mother-in-law. She is going to embrace the emptiness that seems to be staring them both in the face. You wouldn't be wrong if as she's saying these words, you start to hear, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health, as Ruth speaks. She is committing her entire life to Naomi. Even in death, Naomi is still going to cling. That inclusion of burial is the rubber stamp. Everything that's important to Naomi is now important to Ruth. But she doesn't stop just with, I'm committed to you. She also aligns herself with Naomi's people. Your people shall be my people. Ruth is promising more than just a, a trip across the country. She's promising more than just, I'm relocating, I'm changing my address. She's saying, you may still call me a Moabite, but if you ask me, I'm not a Moabite anymore. And here I have to make a confession to all of you. I've been in Little Rock in Arkansas for four and a half years now, and I don't consider myself an Arkansan. I'm still a Pennsylvanian. I will always be a Pennsylvanian. I am not Ruth. She's better than me. We may call Arkansas home, and we do. We do love it here. But I still consider myself a Pennsylvanian. I am no Ruth. And to her credit, though, Naomi's like, I don't want to be. I mean, Ruth is like, I don't want to be a Moabite anymore. I'm done being a Moabite. I'm forsaking my heritage. If Orpah is making the move to go back, to cling to her gods, to cling to her nations, Ruth is doing the opposite. She's forsaking those gods. She's forsaking those nations. She's forsaking everything she once held dear, everything she loved most, and everyone with it. And she has no idea how this is going to work out. She has no idea if she's going to be welcomed when she comes back to Bethlehem. And we'll find that the welcome she gets initially is a little bit mixed. She has no idea if they're going to take this outsider and welcome her into the covenant community. But she doesn't care. She's transferring her membership, which is what a lot of scholars say is she's doing here, from Moab to Israel. She's clinging to Naomi's people just as much as she's clinging to Naomi. Just as a quick point of implication for us, Ruth's words should make us far more willing than we probably are to embrace and cling to the people of God, to cling to one another. No, it's not always easy. And no, it's not always the most joyful or desirable. But if we claim to cling to God by faith, which Naomi is, Ruth is about to do, we're also claiming to cling to his people by faith as well. Imperfections and all. But back to Ruth's last and greatest word, she aligns herself not only with Naomi, not only with Naomi's people, but also with Naomi's God. She says two words. Your God, my God. That's it. These two words are the exact middle of this speech. She's been building towards it and she will go from it. They're the cream filling of the Oreo cookie. The best and most important part. More than throwing her lot in just with Naomi and her people, she is throwing her lot in with Naomi's God, with 
Yahweh, this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that Ruth, we don't really know how much she knows about him. She says, the gods of my family I'm done with. I will no longer seek to find refuge and security and an anchor in them. I will cling to Yahweh. And again, we don't know how much Ruth knew about the Lord. If Naomi and her family are the standard from what we've seen in chapter 1, and if they're the standard of living in the time of the judges, which we know what the Israel was like in the time of the judges, it's safe to assume that her knowledge is likely incomplete and flawed at best. But still, she chooses to cling to this God. Her future could prove to be as empty and hopeless as Naomi thinks, or it could be gloriously wonderful. Naomi says, Ruth says it doesn't matter. I am walking this road with Naomi, with her people, and ultimately with her God. This is where, as I mentioned earlier, Ruth demonstrates for us the path of the gospel, the true way to life. It is forsaking anything and everything that we are tempted to place our trust in, and trusting only in and throwing ourselves fully on the mercy and the favor of our gracious God. For how could an outsider like Naomi find peace, reconciliation, and welcome with God? How could outsiders like us also find peace and reconciliation and welcome with God? It would be through Ruth's greater son, whom we heard earlier read from in Ephesians 2, but now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. God does not turn away those who cling to him by faith in Christ. He will not abandon them. He will never remove that amazing love that we sang of moments ago. Yes, he will certainly call us to follow the road blazed by our Savior, a road that will require us at times to embrace emptiness. And it will require us to cling to him and to him alone by faith. But he promises he will be with us and he will hold us fast, even as we feebly attempt to hold him fast. So then ask the question, are you clinging to Christ? Are you living, as we sang, with him as your one and only anchor to keep you secure when life gets dark, to keep you secure when you stare at the road ahead and all you can see is emptiness, hopelessness, darkness, and despair? Are you clinging to him by faith, by dying to your own self-interest, to your own desires, for the sake of him and his desires? Are you clinging, not to the treasures of this world that will leave you empty, not to the treasures of the world that will be left behind, but clinging instead to the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for those who are resting in Christ? And are you daily coming back to him in repentance and faith when you choose to walk by sight as we all do? Are you asking for his spirit to supply you with the grace and the strength you need to keep walking that road of faith. And if you're possibly here this morning outside of Christ, I would plead you to take a page out of Ruth's book. Turn to Christ. 
Throw yourself on his mercy, on his favor. Because only Christ can save, only he can bring the hope that you need. But may all of us cling to him today by faith. Whether the days ahead look good or bad or somewhere in between. And finally, we come then back to Naomi, who is blinded by bitterness. Even after this wonderful profession, this vow that Ruth makes, Naomi is unable to and possibly even refusing to see the reality of God's grace at work in her life. I'll be brief with this point because it really could be, and maybe I should have just called it more walking by faith. Because instead of it being walking by hopelessness, Naomi's added walking by bitterness. In many ways, verses 20 and 21 are are, are giving us a further picture into Naomi's heart. Bitterness is the lens through which she sees the world around her. And where do we see this specifically? I'll highlight just three ways. First, Naomi gives no response to Ruth. If you know the book, uh, if you know the book, Lord of the Rings, Frodo, he's initially reluctant. He tries to, to get Frodo to turn back. I mean, to get Sam to turn back. But ultimately, when Sam comes, he says, but I am glad, Sam. I can't tell you how glad. Come along. It is plain that we were meant to go together. He's rejoicing that he has a companion. Naomi's response, she says nothing. No thank you, Ruth. No prayer of thanks to the Lord that I'm not alone on this journey. Not even a flinch. A joyful leaping when Ruth says, your God, my God. I'll be honest, it's pretty cold. And colder still as they return and everyone's wondering, who is this Naomi? She says, the Lord's brought me back empty even while she has Ruth at her side. Even though she comes back with Ruth, who has pledged, I'm with you to the end, Naomi says, I'm empty. I have nothing. Ruth is not a sign of God's potential faithfulness. Ruth is not a sign of God's grace. She's a sign of emptiness. You see, that bitterness has a way of affecting how we view those around us, even those we love and who love us most. We may even view them not as blessings, but as burdens, which Naomi does. But second, we see that Naomi can also not see God's mercy. She can only see his judgment. Naomi makes an equally poetic speech, and it packs quite a punch. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Pleasant. When the Lord has testified against me and the Lord Almighty has brought calamity upon me. While a lot can be said about this speech, the structure, how she uses both the title Almighty and the name Yahweh, the crux of her speech is she places all the blame on God. She says, he has made my life bitter. He has brought disaster on me. He has emptied himself, emptied me. He is my enemy. And while she does not accuse God of evil, she does accuse him of declaring and judging her as guilty, even though according to her mind, she has no guilt within her. 
In her bitterness, she's oblivious to her guilt, which we looked at last week. But she's not oblivious to God's sovereignty. One commentator summarizes her position this way. She does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God. But this is a sovereignty without grace. An omnipotent power without compassion. A judicial will without mercy. She says, God hasn't brought me home to restore me. There's no grace waiting for me in Bethlehem. There's just a hopeless future. There are only bitter and hopeless years left for me. I hope they're few. And we see that bitterness doesn't allow us to, it doesn't make room for us to see our own faults. We looked at it last week. It only sees the fault in others. It only sees the problems that we have caused and it points the blame at God. He's the one who's turned our world upside down. I didn't have anything to do with it. And then third, we see Naomi's bitterness keeps her from seeing the current provision that God has made for her. Chapter 1 ends with these words that we could very easily just move past. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. If you're not an expert in 12th century B.C. farming, which I don't think anyone is, you likely don't know that the barley harvest was the very first of what would prove to be many. The wheat harvest would come right after. And after the wheat harvest would come the summer fruit. The beginning of the barley harvest was a not-so-subtle way of saying... Ruth and Naomi came home at the beginning of plenty. The house of bread that we looked at last week that was empty because of Israel's unfaithfulness is now yet again the house of bread in abundance. So as Naomi comes and says, I went away full, which is very ironic because she went away because she had nothing, and I come back empty, she's coming back to a people who are saying, we were empty and now we are full by the grace of God. bitterness we see blinds us to the very present reality of God's work of grace in and around us. It makes us indifferent to the provisions that he gives to others. It makes us jealous of what they have that we still lack. And such bitterness is yet one more signpost to us walking not by faith but instead by sight. And such bitterness is one more sign that we yet again need to come to Jesus. We need him to help us avoid bitterness. To see through it when it seeks to cloud our vision. We need him to help us to walk by faith and to see his grace at work in us and through us. Even when we've made a wreck of our lives. Because in Christ we are assured that God is not cold against us. But he's working for our good and for his glory. In Christ, we are assured that God is not actively working bitterness against us. But his bitterness, his wrath has been poured out against our sin in Christ. And instead, the doors of feasting and abundance have been thrown open. We can find true satisfaction, true joy and delight in him. We can even find restoration and renewal when the road feels like it's bitter. Walking by sight chooses to embrace the bitterness of life. But walking by faith chooses instead to allow the bitterness to melt under the warmth of God's grace poured out on us in Christ. So as we close, I, I ask the question for each of us to consider. 
to think about, to, to discuss as we go home. Will you walk by faith or will you walk by sight? Walking by sight may work for a time. It might have worked for Orpah. It certainly seemed right to Naomi. But ultimately, Orpah faded into obscurity. We know nothing more about Oprah. Orpah. I talked to someone yesterday. I might Freudian slip and say Oprah. I just did it. Orpah. Whereas God, thankfully, had still work to do in Naomi. And we'll see that work of God's grace in and through her. She will, by the end, come home in spirit, not just in the flesh. But walking by sight did not lead to fullness, only emptiness. It couldn't see the reality of God's grace extended to sinful outsiders and rebellious insiders. And we'll see that walking by faith worked for Ruth. No, it didn't work immediately. It did not suddenly remove the clouds, the darkness, and the despair. It didn't take away the pain and the sorrow. But it did bring her nearer and nearer to the God she didn't completely know, but the God who she threw herself at the mercy of, pleading and clinging to his grace. And it brought her welcome. It would bring her rest. And we'll see it will eventually bring her fullness and restoration. It will bring her home. And it can do the same for us. You and I are called to live by faith, even when faith must embrace emptiness. Let us pray. Father God, we confess that we so often live by sight. We look at the promises of this world, we look at the fleeting pleasures of this world, and they think, we think they are real, they think, we think they are lasting. And then we find they are but a foil. Forgive us. Help us by your spirit to walk all the more by faith. To cling to you, Jesus. To run to you. To hold fast to you knowing that it's not in our own strength that we will persevere or that we will hold fast, but it is because you have promised to hold fast to us. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.